Now, by a showing of hands, I'd like to ask, how many of you know that relationships are messy? If you're at home, I see some here. How about at home? I hope your hands are up. Uh, how many of us know that relationships are messy? Uh, marriage relationships, family relationships, work relationships, <clears throat> friend relationships, relationships at school. Uh, relationships are not easy. They are hard work, and they are messy. At the center of every relationship is good communication and trust. At the center of every relationship is, is a level of trust. Trust is required if two people are going to have a relationship. There's a physical trust. You have to take someone at their word. If they say something to you, they say they're going to do something. You have to trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And there's an emotional trust. There's an emotional trust. We have to trust someone with your feelings. If you're going to grow closer to them and, and be in a relationship with them, you have to uh, practice trusting them with your relationships. And, and a healthy relationship is one that trusts not just in our strengths, but also trusts in our weaknesses. And that can be scary, and that can be hard, and as I said, it can be messy. Which is why relationships all around us, they're so fragile, and they often break. We see this everywhere. Maybe even in our own lives we can see this. If, if I don't take care of the relationships in my life, they're going to crack, they could break, people could get hurt. And broken relationships, they cause stress. If you've ever had a broken relationship, it causes stress in your life. The stress impacts our mental health, and our mental health impacts the way we see the world and the way we deal with other people. Relationships are messy. And yet, fundamentally, people are relational beings. We all have needs, and we all have wants, and we all have desires that we are expressing. But when my need comes up against someone else's need, if I want something and someone else wants something, if we don't have a way to talk that out, if we don't have a way to figure out how to solve that problem, it gets broken. It gets messy. For example, I was talking to Beth the other day, and I asked her if I could share this, and she said, yes, if Beth wants a donut and I want a donut, and we don't communicate about how we're going to get that donut, if one of us takes that donut, there's going to be an issue in our house. There's, there's going to be a problem because she's going to say it's hers and I can guarantee you that might not work out so well for her. So there's, there is a, there is a, there's an intrinsic uh, problem there if we're not careful because if I want something and she wants something and we don't have a way to work out that trust, if we don't have a way to work through that problem, I know that's a silly example, but you get what I'm saying, right? That we have to be able to work through our relationships because relationships are messy, in the church, we like to say that we're all about relationships. We say that all the time. You hear me say that every Sunday, that we are all about relationships. But relationships here in the church are just as messy. They're just as broken as my family and your family and your friends and your workplace and your school. We're just as broken here. This past summer, um, we were doing a summer message concert series and, um, and one of the songs, actually, the second song that we looked at was a song uh, entitled Truth Be Told by Matthew West. I don't know if anybody remembers that song, but it's on the radio a lot. Um, and Matthew West uh, sang the song. And there's a line in that song that I want to read for you today. It says this. It says, this of the church. This is what Matthew West is saying. He says, there's a sign on the door saying, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we live like that was true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. But didn't you say the church should look more like a hospital? A safe place for the sick, the sinner, the scarred, and the prodigal. 
like me. The church is a place for relationships, but even here, God's people mess things up. We're all broken. We're all flawed. We are a broken and flawed group of people trying to come together. We are trying to love Jesus Christ as the best way we can in the hope that somehow, somehow in our brokenness, God will use us. And the reason I have this table before you is because I had this image as I was writing this sermon that we're kind of like this container. We're like this container as the church. And so we're like this container. We want God to use us. We want to be used by God. And so when God comes along and, and he has uh, love and God pours love into our life, we want to be able to hold that. But the problem is, is there's a hole in the bottom. There's a hole in the bottom. And so when we take love, it, it causes a problem. And we try and take hope. God gives us hope. And the problem is, is when we have hope, that hope goes right through because we're broken and because we're flawed. And, and God gives us faith. And he shares faith with us. And he says, that faith, he goes, I want to give that to you. But the problem is, is even when God gives us faith, faith and hope and love, when God gives us these things, they're broken. And we can't hold the way God intends us to hold these things. We hold them broken, if you will. And so how long can a, can a broken container last? How long can a broken container hold on to faith and hope and love? Just a little bit before it seems to, to seep through. How can we forge relationships with each other if we are broken and if we are flawed human beings? How can we do that? How can we say that we're about that? Because if there's anything that we can agree on in the church, it's that the church is broken. I mean, throughout history, we can look at the church and we can see that the church hasn't always acted well. The church. Like the song says, if we were better with our relationships, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. But we're not. Since the first congregation met in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, God's people have argued, they've fought, and sometimes they've treated each other really badly in the church. Now, personalities, they get in the way. Our personalities get in the way. Our personal preferences get in the way. Do you know, I, I don't know if this is true, but I like to say it, that more churches have split over hymnals than actual theology. Right? Their personal preferences get in the way. I want a blue hymnal. I want a red hymnal. Ah, I like that music. I don't like that music. When I was coming into ministry in the 90s, right, as I was starting in ministry, the big issue of the day was the worship wars. That's what everybody was talking about. There were people, churches were splitting over the wars. That's what they called them. Our personal preferences get in the way. There are power moves within the church. You've heard me say this. It's my favorite quote of anybody. John Adams said he wanted to be a minister, but he couldn't take the politics, so he went to the government. I love that quote because it's so true. I've read story after story, horror stories from seminary through things we see on Facebook of colleagues and people in ministry. There are power plays. People are always trying to grab power within church. They're using money as a weapon. This happens. It happens in God's church. There are disagreements and people are, are elevating money over faith or power over faith. Churches have split over ideologies. Did you know that, I looked this up, there are 40,000 different Christian denominations in the world. 40,000 different Christian denominations in the world. That's crazy. All of them are focused on Jesus, but they're all, there's 40,000 different ideologies out there. 
And even in missions, the way churches go about missions and what they think they should be doing for outreach. Um, you know, Paul and Peter were divided in the early church over the way they were going to share mission work in the world. So the church has not acted well in its history. It's broken. It's flawed. Forging a relationship with each other isn't easy because we're all individuals. And unless there's some guiding principle, unless there's something that stands outside of us, some unifying vision, unless there's some goal that pulls us all in the same direction, at some point the personalities and the preferences, they get to be too powerful and they break they break the relationships that are going on in the church. They become too powerful and the relationship breaks because we're cracked. And so we need to find a way. How can we, how can we fix this container so that we can be used by God? Last week I mentioned to you that I have been uh, reading through the Old Testament and so the new year found me into the uh, parts of the Old Testament. I was wrapping up First Chronicles, and I noticed something about the relationships of the people of God and how they forged, I'll use that term, forged their relationships with each other so many years ago. At the end of First Chronicles, King David is outlining his plan for the future. He's kind of wrapping up his time as they're chronicling his, his ministry or his life. And so he's wrapping it up and he's talking about his plans for the future. He's describing how the tribes of Israel are going to uh, look and what they're going to do, how they're going to be established. He's going to talk about their roles. He's going to talk about the priests and what the priests are supposed to do and how the priests are going to do it and, and how they're going to be overseers of the people. And he's, just, he's outlining the way he, he sees things going as God has given it to him uh, to talk about. And then David explains that God has given him a vision for a temple. He says, God gave me a vision for a temple where God would live in Jerusalem. And in the 28th chapter, <coughs> excuse me, we see that King David called the officials. <coughs> he called the officials in Jerusalem. He called them all together. And he spoke to them. And he said, he said, I got a plan for a temple that God wants me to build. But here's the thing. I'm not going to be the one who's going to be able to build it. It's actually going to be built by my son Solomon. And the reason Solomon's going to build it is because I'm a warrior at heart and I've shed too much blood. And God wants a man of peace to build his temple. So I don't get the privilege of building this temple, but I'm going to outline it for you. God has given me a, a vision for what this can look like. And so David tells the people, and here we pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 28. It says, the Lord God, yet the Lord God, yet the Lord, the God of Israel, has chosen me from among all of my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen the tribe of Judah to rule, and from among the families of Judah he has chosen my father's family. And from among my father's sons, the Lord was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And from among my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over Israel the Lord's kingdom. Now I want you to go back in time with me to 7th, 8th grade history class. Because if you were sitting in your 7th or 8th grade history class, you will remember that in typical fashion, when a king is to be succeeded, it is his eldest son that takes the reign. It is the eldest son that the power is transferred to and he is the one that would take control. But that's not what's going on here. It's not the eldest son. Solomon was the fourth son of David's wife Bathsheba, and he was his tenth son in years. He was his tenth oldest son. 
there were lots of choices between his first son and Solomon. But, but, God, but God chose Solomon to be his successor. Now, why God chose Solomon, I sort of alluded to with the, the peacefulness, but there's more to that story, and that's a, that's a story for another time. But for today, I just want to ask you to ask yourself, what might that decision to put Solomon in place have done to the family dynamics and the relationships of David's family? He has chosen Solomon, 10th in line, to become the next king. How might that decision ripple out into the leaders of the community, out into not just his family, but into the, the, the leadership of the community? If you're thinking that it was a big deal, you're right. It was a big deal. It was a messy deal. Solomon, uh, choosing Solomon to be king, no doubt caused some messy relationships. In fact, earlier in the Bible, if we were to go back in time, we could look at 2 Samuel. We catch a glimpse of some of David's family dynamics. About 10 years before Solomon is made king, Absalom, who was David's first son, Absalom, his oldest son, tried to rebel and steal control from his father David while David was king. Absalom got the people all worked up. He convinced them to pick sides. He tried to murder his father. In David's family, there was deception. There was rebellion. There was even murder. Everyone, everyone, everyone even at home, everyone listening right now, I want you all to say this. Say relationship issues. Say it out loud. One, two, three. Relationship issues. I can't hear you at home. One, two, three. Relationship issues. David had relationship issues. It was a mess. It was a mess. They had relationship issues. There were broken relationships all over the place. And yet, we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, that when it came time to pass the torch to Solomon, the tenth oldest son of David, look at this, verse 22, they anointed him before the Lord as their leader, and they anointed Zadok as the priest. So Solomon took the throne of the Lord in place of his father David, and he succeeded in everything, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, all the warriors, and the sons of King David pledged their loyalty to King Solomon. Wow. How did that happen? How did they forge their relationships in such a way that they could come together and that they could support Solomon like that? How does a group of broken people come together with cracks in their buckets, the size of which, which, which would allow for murder in their family and murder in their life? How could they come together so that they could be so whole, that they could be unified together and do God's work going forward into the future? A thousand years before Solomon was, I'm sorry, a thousand years after Solomon was made king, Jesus was born. A thousand years after this incident, Jesus was was born. From David's family tree of broken relational failure, Jesus enters the world. David, Bathsheba, Absalom, Solomon, all are broken and flawed people. They're a broken and flawed group of people. In the Old Testament, we see that people, they forge relationships with each other by trying to come together, by trying to love God the best way they knew how, but they were still broken. They were still broken. And for us today, we are broken. 
We are a flawed group of people, every single one of us seated here today, listening online. Every single one of us is flawed. Every single one of us here today, <clears throat> we're the church. We are the church. None of us is perfect. We all sin. We are all sinners. We all need the grace of God in our lives. And the way we move forward, the way we do this, is we acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge it. We acknowledge that we are broken. <clears throat> we ask for forgiveness. And then having been forgiven, we look for ways to love God by living right, by loving the things God loves, and by serving other people. That's how we do it. In the church, relationships are a priority. We start by forging our relationship with God. That's primary. Then the way we forge relationships with each other is to believe the best in each other. We believe the best for each other. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You are a, saver, a sinner saved by grace. We are all broken together. And so in the church, when there's a disagreement or when there's people who are uh, fighting over preferences or over power, when there's different opinions about how to get things done, when you don't see eye to eye, the way that you forge a relationship is to trust that God loves that other person as much as he loves you. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Jesus has come and is available to you and to me. For everyone who calls upon him as Lord, Jesus is available. And the same grace that God offered, the same grace that God offers you, he offers to me, and he offers to the person who might not think like you. We are all a broken and flawed group of people. But in our church, we have a saying. We seek to put Jesus first. And if we can learn as a church to put Jesus first, then Jesus will come and he will heal the things in our life that are broken. When Jesus comes in and heals those things, we can be used by God to do amazing things. And so when God puts Jesus over the brokenness of our lives, we can take the faith that God gives us and it will hold. We can take the hope that God gives us every single day and we can have it inside of our lives. We can take the love that God gives to us Love that's not just for us, but love that is for everyone. For the purpose, the ultimate purpose of us being able to go out into the world and to share that faith, that hope, and that love with others so that we can come back week after week, day after day, moment after moment, spending time with him and growing closer to God. The way we fix the brokenness in our lives is we allow Jesus to be first in all things. You can forge a relationship by trusting, by turning to each other and trusting that God loves that person who is different from you. That's how you do it. That God loves that person who's different from you as much as God loves you. You sin and I sin, but even in our brokenness, that brokenness won't keep us from being loved by God. Forging relationships with each other starts when we believe that our differences don't separate us from each other, but instead, God who heals all of us can work even in our brokenness. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this church. 
And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us as broken individuals. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that when we allow you into the broken parts of our lives, you heal us, you restore us, and by your grace, you help us to move forward. So Lord, if there's anyone here today who has brokenness that they are uh, seeing as something that is just so overwhelming or they're seeing it as, as something that keeps them from being able to relate to others, God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us. Lord, to trust you, to learn how to do that, to take daily steps of learning to put Jesus first so that we can hold on to the love and the hope and the faith that you give us. And ultimately, Lord, as we'll talk about next week, that we can share that with our community. We pray all this today. In Jesus' name, amen.